You're listening to sermons from Church on Bayshore in Niceville, Florida. Our mission is to do whatever it takes to see people believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who God created them to be, impacting the world for Christ. To learn more about our church and to find additional resources, including ways to connect, serve, and give, visit churchonbayshore.org. with you, Marin, and your faith in Jesus Christ, and uh, we're proud of you, Joseph, big brother, uh, for how God is using you in uh, her life, and man, I'm just so incredibly grateful for what God is doing in our students and children. Church family, last Sunday morning on our campus, students and children combined, we had 388 people here with us, so that is 388 below the age of 18. Praise God. Some of you have been a part of this church long enough to know when that was about 100, and uh, a lot of you uh, who've been here a while, you gave and you prayed and you committed to the direction that we're in now, and I just want to say to those of you who've been here for a long time and have made what's happening possible, thank you so much for your faithfulness and your commitment to what God's doing. Let's praise those who've been here. And, and if today is your first time with us, we're glad that you are here with us. We would love to connect with you and help you learn how you can get uh, involved in the life of this church. You can text the word connect uh, to the number that is on the screen, and one of our Connect team members will follow up with you this week. If you're with us online for the first time, thank you so much for joining us that way. Uh, we'd love to connect with you as well, and so you can text the word connect to that same number, and we will reach out to you this week as well. Let me encourage everyone to come back tonight for our prayer night. We do do these once a month, and tonight at five o'clock, we'll be uh, hearing about what God is doing through our church globally in terms of our missions partnerships and praying over those partnerships, and then our deacons are serving us ice cream afterwards, so uh, that sweetens the deal to come back tonight. Yeah, that was lame. All right, so if you have a Bible open to Ephesians chapter four, uh, we are journeying through uh, the book of Ephesians. That journey has taken us to chapter four, and as we look at the first part of chapter four, it really is calling us to maturity in Christ, and so we've titled uh, our series here, Growing Up, and today we're looking at verses four through six, but before I get to today's verses in Ephesians, I want to read verses one through three and quickly recap what we talked about last week to better set up our verses today. So I'm going to begin reading in Ephesians chapter four, verse one. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Last week, we talked about our shared calling, our salvation, the fact that God has called us to himself and that we share together as the people of God. Then we talked about our shaped character. That's our sanctification, how God is making us as his people to become more like him. And then we talked about our secure confidence. That's really our glorification. The fact that God is going to finish his work in us gives us this great confidence in the life that we live. And the urge of Paul is to keep this in view for ourselves, for others, and for the world. Then Paul makes a creedal statement, which some believe was a creed of the early Christians that appeals to the unity that is connected to following Christ. Now, in the Greek text, there is not actually the conjunction there is or whatever may appear in your Bible in verse three or four. And so in the Greek, it reads just like this, verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit 
in the bond of peace. Verse four, one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, what stands out in these verses this morning is the word one. The ancient Greek word for one appears seven times in these verses. And again, this is a furthering of the description by Paul of how believers are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The Bible brings this concept to us often of oneness, this unity that ought to exist amongst the people of God. The devil's chief device is to bring disunity and division amongst his people. Perhaps you are familiar with the old fable of the lion and the four bulls. In this story, it goes as such, and I'm gonna really make it briefer than it is, but there's a lion, and he sees these bulls in the pasture. And while, you know, he sees them, and he sees how tasty they are and how good they would be, he realizes by by the four of them being together, he cannot attack them. So the lion makes a deal with the fox, the sly fox, and says, I'll protect you, and I won't devour you if you will get these four bulls to be isolated. So the sly fox goes, and he begins to show lies and begins to get the bulls to be suspicious of each other, slowly isolating themselves, to which the lion is unable to take them off one by one. Staying one is vital in your relationship with Christ. Staying vital is, staying one is vital in the life of the church. And so this morning, let's examine the appeals to oneness in this text. Then let's talk about how God is working for us to stay one. And then we're gonna reflect on the unity that we have in Christ by taking communion together. If you're uh, not a believer, communion is uh, something that the church has done for 2,000 years. As we eat the bread, and we drink the cup, and we remember the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. This is something believers do together. If you're not a believer, we are so glad that you are here, uh, and we hope that God uh, will be uh, your Lord and Savior, and you will see who he is, but we're grateful you're here nonetheless. We invite you to pass the elements of communion as we observe them uh, together as the church of God. So the first thing that this text tells us about, uh, and when, it, when we come to the idea of oneness, is that we are one body. The word body refers to the church. You can see this in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, actually a lot in 1 Corinthians, and here in Ephesians. One body means that all of the functions are connected to the same purpose, like a body and the different parts of the body. Now, we can see the church expressed in three ways in the scripture. We have a diagram that that articulates this. You have the universal church. So that is the big C church, the global church, all people who believe in Jesus who are part of the church of Jesus Christ. Then you have the local church, which historically is kind of uh, defined by a region or an area, and now I would say is often based on some preferences and many in a region. And then you have the cell church, which is where, where you're gathered together with a smaller group of believers, and you're really able to do the one another's in Scripture. The Christian ought to have this vision that we think universally, we think globally, but we act locally. So we understand what the plans of God are for the global church and that we won't realize all of those in the local and cell church, but that we are called to do what we can in the cell and in the local church. Now, when we look at the global church, we see division. We see disunity. Now, some of this is okay because there are differences that are expressed throughout the global church, but some of this is not okay. 
And, 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 I, and I struggle with this somewhat because there are certain theological convictions that I've come to and I see other brothers and sisters in Christ who don't agree with me on those issues and I think the Bible speaks very plainly to some of those things. And I would just say that the more and more that I mature in Christ, the more I realize, even if I'm right, that ultimately the essentials are what matter for the church of Jesus Christ. And so we see this division, and some of it's good, and it's the way God accomplishes his plan, and some of it uh, is problematic. And I would say that we also see divisions that exist in the local church. And the Bible actually speaks pretty clearly to how we deal with divisiveness and how we confront people in error. But the vision, ultimately, of the church is to be one body working together for the purposes of Christ. That's to be expressed in the cell and locally and universally. Now, verse 4 also says that the church is one spirit or that we are to be one spirit. Now, in Ephesus, there were many different pagan beliefs about the spirit world. And people were, like, were accustomed to making distinctions between those which were good or helpful and those which were bad or harmful. Paul is not denying the reality of the spirit realm here. He's just placing an emphasis that there is one true spirit from God that joins his people together. You see, in, in the case of Ephesus, and I would say other places in the Bible, there was an attempt to pull in the cultural religion with, into the church, into Christianity. And a distinction had to be made between what was not of God and what was of God. Today, it is not as overt, but it is absolutely an issue. Over the past century, New Age philosophies have been on the rise in our country, and those New Age philosophies creep into the church, where many Christians believe that truth ultimately comes from within. When the Bible plainly and explicitly teaches that truth comes from outside, that God has to come into our heart to change the way that we think. And so we don't realize it, but we're actually viewing ourselves as gods, which is a new age philosophy, instead of continually looking to God to shape sinners by nature. Uh, another way would be this idea of manifesting things, where we begin to believe if we can believe and we can see it, we can accomplish it, which is not taught in Scripture, and which has really been facilitated by living in a place where we have more prosperity, but the prosperity gospel is not the gospel. The idea that God always gives people who love him and are doing the right thing, health and wealth, is contrary to what the Bible teaches, but that creeps into the church. And then I would say there are other general influences like Eastern religions and others that begin to affect the church. Now, there's a lot of scripture that teaches us and defines who the Holy Spirit is. We don't have time to walk through all of those. Some are referenced in the handout if you have that this morning. But I wanna give you five things about the oneness of the Spirit very quickly. Five things about the oneness of the Spirit. The first is this, the Spirit is God. The Spirit is God. He's not subservient to God, he is God. The Holy Spirit is a part of the Godhead. And so he acts in unison with God. Secondly, the Spirit leads and empowers. The Spirit does lead the believer, and the Spirit empowers the believer to do the things in which the Spirit is leading him or her to do. Third, the Spirit convicts and assures. The Holy Spirit convicts the believer when they're not doing the things they should and assures us when we are doing the things that we should. Fourth, the Spirit glorifies Jesus. When the Holy Spirit works or moves or whatever you wanna say, it is not to glorify an individual. It is not to glorify the church. If there is any exaltation of the church or by, of the person by the Spirit, it is for the glory of Jesus Christ. 
And lastly, the Spirit unifies the church around Jesus. What the Holy Spirit is doing in leading and empowering and convicting and assuring and glorifying is always to keep us centered and revolved around the person of Jesus. I think it's important to understand that while the Spirit of God is not limited in his capacity, we do have a framework for understanding the Spirit of God. If you go back to Ephesians chapter two, which we were at just a few weeks ago, the Apostle Paul writes this in verse 18. For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here we see the role of the Holy Spirit to build us up, for God to dwell in us, to glorify Jesus. This is the vision of the Holy Spirit. And it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What God spoke through his spirit to the apostles and prophets is the foundation for the people of God today. Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, the glory of this. So a lot of times people talk about what the spirit is leading them to do. And what I would encourage you to do is what the Bible says, test the spirits. Test the spirits to ensure that that is God that I'm hearing from. That that is God that I'm feeling. That that is God that is speaking to me. And I would just say this, a lot of teaching on the Spirit is not tethered to the Word of God, which the Spirit inspired. And so if the Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God, why would the Holy Spirit today be leading us away from what he already said? And that is crucial to understanding this one Spirit that is at work in the life of God's people. So there is one Spirit and there is one body. There is also one hope. The Greek word there is elpis. It means an expectation of good. Biblical hope isn't about uncertainty. It is about expecting something that is going to come. It's not, I hope it doesn't rain today. It's not, I hope I get a raise. I hope I get these Taylor Swift tickets. It's the hope of an assurance of a reality that has just not been fully experienced. Biblical hope is not something you are unsure about. It is something you are very sure about that just hasn't happened yet. Biblical hope is not playing the lottery and hoping your ticket wins. Biblical hope is having an inheritance and it just being held up in probate. But it's coming. That's the hope of the Christian. And Paul says this hope, one hope, belongs to your call. The call is that Greek word klesis, which means invitation to salvation. This hope belongs to you because you have been saved. You see, salvation prompts our trust and obedience. Hope perpetuates it. Salvation is what leads us to want to trust and obey. If he gave me righteousness, then I can trust him. That's why we obey, because he's done a work for us that we couldn't do for ourselves, the greatest work. And then hope is just the, the, what keeps that going. 
It's what keeps us moving in that direction. You see, our calling, we talked about last week, is to serve the Lord in every role and situation he places us. And we can do this because of hope. It's the fuel, even when the circumstances aren't what we'd like them to be, even when we've messed up over and over again. It's this hope that belongs to our calling in our life. And our hope is Jesus Christ. It's not the approval of man that we might get by living this way. It's not the change of circumstances that we might get if we do things differently. It's not getting our way for being faithful or being exalted for being faithful. It's the promise of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. So we have one hope, we have one spirit, we have one body. The text also tells us we have one Lord. Kairos, master. The Bible gives us this image of a kingdom with a king who is ruling and reigning. The Bible tells us that we are called to worship, which means to pay reverence to that king. It means to submit before the throne of that king. That is worship, and there is only one king. There is only one Lord. Now, most people who grow up in a Christian context are like, yeah, of course there's only one Lord. But money is their Lord, or the lifestyle and possessions that money might bring are their Lord. A person is their Lord, or just approval and finding it wherever they can find it and acceptance is their Lord. The call for the Christian is to remember who our Lord is. As we talked about last week out of Colossians 3, 23 and 24, and I encourage you to memorize these verses, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance or the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. It means in every role that I am in, he's Lord, and he's who I'm serving. The Bible talks about servanthood in our lives. If we wanna be great, he says to James and John, we must be servants, and I think we get confused about what the implications of that are and what that means. Because when we become a servant on earth, it doesn't mean that the people we serve on earth are ever our Lord. I like how Alistair Begg states this, he says, I will be your servant, but you will never be my master. For we all have only one master, and that master is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the head of the church. And so the reason we take this position of service is because we are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And we remember that even as we are serving other people, that that never interferes with me serving him. And so, so I think this is freeing for some of you because some of you, your aim in life is to please people, to be accepted by people, to get their approval. And that's not what God is calling us to. There is a great distinction here that we, leave, we live to please him, knowing that we are accepted by him through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I would just say some others, they're not living to please God, but it's kind of like the other way. They're like, I don't have to prove anybody. Haters are my motivators. And I'm like, what are you listening to and saying that? That's not the mentality either here. It's realizing he's my Lord and I'm gonna serve him and he has called me to be a servant out of submission to him. 
All right, one Lord, one spirit, one hope, one body, one faith. The uniting of our will or our trust is what that word means. This actually isn't saying one doctrine. Howard Hayner says, this word used here is subjective faith exercised, not objective truth believed. So what Paul is saying here is that there is one faith that belongs to the church, meaning there is one essential belief about how we are to live our lives. Now again, I do think there are doctrinal issues that make local church and cell church fellowship hard, and those distinctions do need to be made from time to time. But what this is writing about is the most essential belief, salvation. And faith is in Christ alone. Faith is in Christ alone. At the core of the body of Christ is the belief that we are unrighteous without the blood of Christ. That there is no other way in which we may be saved but by the name of Jesus Christ. Now what Paul specifically had in mind when he wrote this is this debate that's going on in the church in Europe and Asia between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul writes in Romans chapter three, verse 28 through 31 regarding this. Here's what he says. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What Paul is saying here is he's saying we do look to the Old Testament. We do look to the laws of God. But we recognize that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the same God. And therefore, we understand that the clarity on the gospel through the person of Christ, in which the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so there is the same God. And so the Jews who continue to hold the laws, they can continue to keep these laws, but they must not believe they make you righteous. And the Gentiles who didn't grow up in those laws, they follow Jesus and they begin to see what does the word of God say for my life. And he's saying, this is the essential. And this is important. Because probably in this room, watching in your living room this morning, there are those who believe, well, there are people from other faiths. They'll go to heaven. They're pretty good people. It's usually a form of universalism because we still exclude certain people that we don't like. But it's just this kind of idea, hey, they don't have to believe in Jesus. Or... Maybe it's this idea, well, they were a part of my family. I love them so much. Of course they're going to heaven, even if they didn't seem to acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Or maybe it's this idea, well, they did the works, whether that just is baptism when they were young or that was keeping all of the sacraments. But because they did those things, they'll be righteous. And I say this with an intense word because I know other know of no other way to say that. This is damning of people's souls. This leaves people condemned. The Bible tells us 
There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That's how we are freed from the condemnation that our sin deserves, the free gift of Jesus Christ. That's the essential belief of the church, one faith. Also, Paul says one baptism. Now, Robert Bracter says this, it may be more satisfactory to translate this as one person for whom we are baptized or one person in whose name we are baptized or one purpose for which we are baptized. Baptism is the symbolic act of dying to ourselves and being resurrected by Christ. We've just seen a picture of that. It's a symbolic act of dying to ourselves and being resurrected by Christ. The Bible shows us that in several places. Now, our view as a church of baptism is specific. You may or may not have known this, but we are a Baptist church, and so we have a belief about baptism. And our belief about baptism is that it is something that happens after you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. After you understand the gospel, the good news that God has sent his son to die on the cross as a substitution for your sins. And you are now saying, I place my hope in the work of Jesus Christ for righteousness. And so now I am being baptized to symbolize that I have been buried with Christ and he raises me to new life because he has resurrection power. That's what we believe baptism is. And we believe that's how it happens. I know that there are other views on baptism. There are those who believe in infant baptism. I am not getting all to the, into all the nuances of this this morning for the sake of time. I love them. I believe I'm right. I have studied this. I've heard those point of views. But there are those who I believe love Jesus who hold to this view. And I think while you could debate infant baptism or sprinkling baptism, the bigger issue is what do they believe about baptism? Do they believe that it is symbolic of our need for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that that is us identifying with Jesus Christ, or do they believe that it's an act that just washes away our sins by doing it? I think that is an important distinction. There are those who believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe, and we are Baptist very clearly, that it is something that happens when you come to faith in Christ. And again, I'm not gonna spend all the time debating that, but I would say for those that believe in it, do they believe that it is an identification with Christ and that Christ immersion is sufficient one time. That is an important issue because the bigger issue here is what do we believe baptism means? Do we believe that it is some act that makes us more righteous or we have to do in order to have it? I'm assuming we have to do good things in order to have it or do we believe that it is an identification with the work of Christ? There is one baptism. Okay, and then the last thing this text tells us about the oneness is that there is one God and Father of all. Now understand that when Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, there is a lot of diversity in the social makeup of this church. And um, his context is very clearly people from all kinds of religious views, socioeconomic views, and he's talking to the church. So he's not saying that God, that God is the father of every person 
who lives. He's saying God is the father of the church. God is not yet the father of unbelievers. Satan is the father of unbelievers. John chapter eight, among other places, show us that. If you believe that God is everyone's father and they're just in his family, you believe in a form of universalism. What has to happen is we have to realize Satan is not a good dad and he wants to desert me and leave me devoured. But I have been created by the one true God who longs to be my father and adopt me by his blood into his family and I need to go to him. That's what needs to happen in our life and that's the message that we ought to carry as the people of God. There is one God and father of all and there's one baptism through the immersion of the blood of Jesus Christ. There's one faith that Jesus Christ alone saves. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ. There's one hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the rule and return of Jesus Christ. There's one spirit, it's the Holy Spirit which seeks to glorify Jesus Christ and there is one body, it is the church of Jesus Christ. This must be the mentality and the heart of the person who identifies with the Father. And the Father is acting to move us in this direction. And so let me show you quickly three ways that God works for oneness. Three ways that God works for oneness. And Paul shows us them here. Number one, he's overall. And he has authority. Your, your translation might say he's above all. It's a position of rank. We will see as we go on in Ephesians that submission is a big part of the Christian life. You see, unity is tied to who we submit to. In a country, unity is tied to who we submit to. This is why we have such division in our country because there's multiple authorities in our country today. Unity is tied to who we submit to at work. When leaders don't have a common purpose and shared vision, it creates disunity in the workplace. Unity is tied to submission at home. When there isn't clear understanding of the direction of our family and shared that creates division in the home. We are designed to live all aspects of our life in submission to God. And the people of God ought to understand that about how we live our lives together. And we need to continue to put Christ above all or overall where he deserves to be and where he really is to be one. He's the authority. It's his church. Second thing that Paul shows us about how God works for our oneness is through all. God wants to work through you. He wants your life to be lived for his purpose. How does God do this? Well, Jesus says in the Great Commission, I'm above all. He says, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Discipleship is how God works through people. Christians over the years have confused what discipleship is. I don't want you to be confused this morning. A lot of Christians think that discipleship is a sanitation process. 
You take dirty people out of the world and you dip them in Holy Spirit Clorox and you clean them and you put them in a new environment, the church. So here we go. No R movies, no beer, no tobacco, and definitely no dancing. In this case, holiness is defined by what you avoid. That is not discipleship. Christian discipleship is teaching people to be like Jesus. It's teaching people to be filled with the spirit of God so that they can be used for the mission of God. Certainly, it will include things to avoid. But my concern is that we often distract new believers instead of disciple them with what we emphasize. I am so proud of our church's emphasis on the scriptures. I think it is incredibly needed to have a great emphasis on the scriptures. I think that some of you have found yourself at our church because for some reason, it is increasingly less and less common for churches to look to the word of God to become like Christ. I don't get that. But let me give you a warning. And it comes from a story I read by Gary Enrig. He tells the story of the Prince of Granada who was sentenced to life in prison in Madrid and was only given a Bible. For 33 years, the Prince of Granada read and read the Bible. And when he died and his cell was cleaned out, they found things carved on stone in his cell, like Psalm 118, verse 8, is the middle verse of the Bible. Ezra 721 has all the letters in the Bible, I mean in the alphabet, besides J. Esther 8:9 is the longest verse in the Bible, and so forth. Inrig says, 33 years of exposure to the truth of God, and all he apparently collected was trivia. The goal of being people who focus on the Bible is not to be good at the Bible category on Jeopardy. The goal of focusing on the Bible is to be like Jesus. It is to know him and to make him known together. Our vision as this church is not a group of people basking in the gifts of one leader or a few leaders who can bring you closer to Christ. It's every member of the church of Jesus Christ empowered to carry Christ wherever they go. You see, the inevitable effect of treating church as a worship service and as classes is to make the people of God passive and too dependent on experts. We need to adopt this mindset that God wants to work through me and as we've just immersed ourselves in and he can do immeasurably more than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. God wants to work through all for his oneness and last, oh, not lastly, sorry, let me just say one more thing about that. Many of us today feel unfulfilled and bored spiritually because we've never experienced the power of Christ working through us. You keep expecting the power of God to be felt in an hour, I preach a little long, hour and 15 minutes on Sunday mornings. God's power will be felt when you begin to trust and obey him and experience him working through you. And you're waiting on God to move. God is moving. And I would say this church reflects that. And I think a question I would ask you is do you have anything to do with that? Is what God is doing in growing this church because of you or is it growing around you? Okay, now the last thing, the last way that God works 
for our oneness is in all. I'll wrap up with this thought. Christ didn't just die to be the savior of the church. He died to become the inhabitant of the church. A few months ago, my now five-year-old, four-year-old at the time was talking to me and I was explaining God being with us and Jesus being here with us and he told me, Jesus isn't here, he's on the cross. I'm like, no, he's here with us and he's like, nah, he's on the cross. I've seen the pictures in class, you know. <laughs> and I think some of us think like that. We think of Jesus as a relic who died on the cross and saved us and thankfully that happened and we're good now. But the Holy Spirit Christ himself desires to take up residence in you. And this is where the peace that can pass all understanding, that can rule in your heart, that we talked about last week, comes from. I think we all have a vision for community, for the church. Sometimes that vision becomes focused on accomplishment. And I would say that's why we probably have the problems that we have with spiritual abuse and the church growth movement because we begin to look over so many things because things are working, they're pragmatic. For some of us, it might be just security. It doesn't need to be the big church that's growing. I want a smaller group of people who these are my people and I feel safe with. For some of us, it might be, I wanna find a church that it meets my preferences. For some of us, we have this ideal of, we read the New Testament and we think we need to make that happen today in this context and we're striving for that. But I wanna warn you or encourage you maybe, I don't know, with a quote that I read by Dietrich Bonhoeffer and he says this, he who loves community destroys community. He who loves the brethren builds community. Our father didn't die, Christ didn't die for a vision that we have of community. He died because he so loves the world. And when we're one with the father, that's what begins to happen in us. And that is what builds the church. As we prepare to take communion this morning, I would invite you to turn to John chapter 17, verse 20 through 26. I just wanna read these words together. And as I read these words, I pray that we would reflect on them and we would let them guide us as we enter into this time. John chapter 17, beginning, I'm just gonna read verse 20 through 26. This is the prayer, high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says this. I do not ask for these only, talking about the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's got us on his mind. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may become, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. 
I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. 